Hello, and welcome back to Unprecedential, AEI's podcast on American constitutionalism. As always, this is your host, Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by Tal Fortgang. Tal, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a presidential election coming up. This year? Yeah, this year. Amazingly, time flies, but every four years, it one comes around. Did you know about that? Is that I just hope that I'm not pressed into breaking my streak of voting for Mormons for president only. <laughs> I, I hope a, a good Mormon candidate steps up so that I can cast a vote in good conscience. Well, there's, there's always time. And to be honest, if you are lucky to be one of the electors from your state, you might be able to vote for whoever you want to vote for uh, or not. And that is the subject of today's discussion. We're joined uh, by Professor Derek Muller of Pepperdine University, uh, currently visiting at Notre Dame and soon to join the faculty of the great University of Iowa. Derek filed a brief uh, this spring in a case that's soon to be heard by the Supreme Court, a case called Chiafalo versus State of Washington, and its companion case is Colorado Department of State versus Baca. It's a fascinating case on both the nature of the Electoral College, the powers of Congress, and also, in Professor Mueller's brief, powers of the court. So, Derek, Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Adam. And by the way, I want to say off the bat, readers, you should definitely check out Derek's website. It's called Excess of Democracy. It's really a go-to website to read about current developments in election law, campaign finance law, and just the nature of democracy and our democratic process. Before we get to your particular legal arguments in this brief, could you just tell us what this case is about? Sure. So every four years, we vote for president of the United States. Um, but we actually don't formally directly vote for the president. Uh, the Electoral College is responsible for electing the president of the United States. So every state gets a number of electors equal to the number of senators and members of the House they have. Um, so that can be between three. And right now, the most California has 55. And when you go to the polls in November, you're actually voting for a slate of electors. In most states, it's a winner take all. So if your candidate receives the most votes in the state, it's really a, a number of electors who are going to then cast votes at some later meeting. And those electors meet uh, in late December in state capitals around the country. They formally cast their votes for the president and vice president of the United States. And if you get at least 270 electoral votes, uh, that person becomes the next president of the United States. But um, those electors, <laughs> while they're these intermediaries, and often they're uh, folks who we don't think about or often don't even notice, um, they occasionally don't vote the way we expect them to. Occasionally, they'll vote for a different candidate uh, than the major candidates running. They'll protest and refuse to vote for somebody. They'll uh, occasionally accidentally vote for the wrong candidate. Um, there's sort of interesting historical anecdotes along the way. But in 2016, when many people were very frustrated that Donald Trump appeared on pace to win presidential election, um, there were attempts in several of the states to say, well, maybe we can convince some of these electors to vote for some other candidate than Donald Trump. And if we can convince these electors to vote for someone else, then he won't get 270 electoral votes. If he doesn't do that, he doesn't get a majority. And if he doesn't get a majority, then the election is sent to the House of Representatives uh, who can pick from among the top three vote getters, or maybe they can convince them to to give a majority of their votes to somebody else. So that, that was sort of the strategy of the 2016 election. And it resulted in these two cases. So one is out of Colorado, where an elector um, you know, didn't want to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, and he tried to write in John Kasich on his ballot. Uh, this, the 
But under Colorado state law, uh, there's a rule that says if you refuse to act, and that was construed as a refusal to act, you vacate your office. So he was replaced with an elector uh, who did vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, and so he sued and uh, to, to, to say that Colorado shouldn't have been able to do that. Uh, and he won in front of the 10th Circuit uh, in federal court. Then on the other side, in Washington, there were uh, 12 electors, and four of them voted for candidates other than Hillary Clinton, who won the most votes in the state, kind of scattered their votes around. Um, and there's a law in Washington state that says if you vote for the candidate who didn't receive the most votes in the state, uh, you're fined $1,000, so or could be fined up to $1,000, and each of them ultimately were fined $1,000. And this was appealed in state court, and the Supreme Court of Washington said, um, this was an acceptable fine. This is something that could be done. Um, state of Washington was in the right. So you kind of have a split between the courts and whether or not you can sanction uh, individuals who vote for a candidate other than the one who won the, the, the most votes in the state. Um, one federal court, one in state court, one a replaced elector, one electors who are fined. And, and that's the, the case up before the Supreme Court right now. So the basic issue is whether the states can enact laws that bind the electors to either cast votes for the candidate who won the state or to give up their seat and be replaced by somebody who will do as, the, as they're required by the law. Yes, exactly. Just a question along the way before we dive into the history of all this. Who picks the elector, the slate of electors for each candidate? So it is all over the map in the states. Uh, sometimes it's, it's very party driven. The candidate themselves might, might pick the names and, and send them along or the, or the party might send them along late in the process. You know, in August or September, they send these names along to the Secretary of State. Uh, in other places, it's happening right now. It's, uh, it's uh, meetings of county or district conventions of the state parties where they're, they're picking uh, these individuals who will then serve as electors. In, in California, uh, it's kind of a spoil system where if you are, you know, so if you're a Democrat, you get to choose, uh, or who's serving the House, you get to choose an elector from your district as you want. So the example I always like to give is Nancy Pelosi always picks her daughter, Christine Pelosi, uh, to be one of California's 55 electors. <laughs> um, you know, in 2016, Bill Clinton was a presidential elector out of New York uh, to, to represent and vote for his wife. So um, these are sort of randomly picked throughout the, the, in terms of the process, because there's not sort of a one size fits all. And while some individuals are a little bit more know, well known, um, others, most of them sort of live in anonymity. I'm not going to ask you to be a mind reader or anything, but could you read people's minds for a moment and just tell me, <laughs> why would anybody want to be, I mean, do you have any sense of why people want to be an elector? You have to go somewhere and just vote a vote that's already been decided for you. It sounds kind of like a hassle. What's, uh, what's, why do people want to do this? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's something like being a delegate to the presidential nominating convention, right? So people show up. There are thousands of delegates that show up for the DNC or RNC meetings, right? And I mean, yeah, maybe there's an incentive when it's a contested election. But, um, you know, there were 4,000 Democratic delegates who were showing up uh, in 2012 to, to, to cast their votes formally for Barack Obama as the Democratic Party's nominee. And there'll be a, a couple thousand Republicans if they're allowed to meet uh, in 2020 voting for Donald Trump. So I think there's a sense in which, you know, if you are a party loyalist, 
and you realize this is a constitutional function. Uh, you know, it's it's an, an important formal act. Yeah, you show up at the at the state capitol on a, on a cold late December day and, and cast these ballots. But I, I think there is sort of a sense of civic pride that that attaches to it for a lot of individuals, and and and, and they they enjoy being able to sort of serve this this somewhat formal function. I keep digressing, and I promise we'll get back on track <laughs> with the history of this. But something you said along the way just sort of piqued my curiosity. You said one more time, you know. They meet in the state capitals, right? Assuming people can meet. Well, it says right there in the 12th Amendment that the electors shall meet in their respective states. Is there, is there any chance that we're going to have given we're, – we're taping this, by the way, um, on April 30th of 20, uh, 2020, so a long way away from the election. Um, but if there's a new COVID outbreaks around the time of, of the election and then up to the, the vote counting, is there any chance that we're going to have a constitutional question about what happens if public safety counsels against people meeting in person? I mean, I suppose they would just meet in a big room and stand 10 feet away from each other? Or? Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. I mean, again, most states are pretty small electoral count totals, right? A, yeah. a lot of states have three, you know, Vermont's three electors. It's going to be easy to social distance when they gather together. <laughs> um, you know, it's a little tougher in California and Texas, but even then, you know, to, to figure out how 55 people can assemble, uh, I, don't, I don't think should be that great of a challenge and they're short meetings. But, but it is, we're living in an era where there, there's all kinds of novel questions that uh, we, we should probably be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, this is a dad joke, right? But the, the Electoral College will be the only college in America that isn't doing everything by Zoom. Um, <laughs> before we get to the, uh, it's all you can edit in the, uh, the, the rim shot uh, sound effect later. Um, but before we get to the, the, the real crux of the Supreme Court case and your thoughts on it and, your, and the, the issues you've raised about the court's power to even decide the case, Let's just talk about how we got to here from there. Obviously, the Electoral College, it's changed in, in ways since it was first created. I mean, in some ways, just formally by the, the, the enactment of the, of the 12th Amendment. Um, but also, over 200 plus years, the Electoral College has gone from sort of a, an institution that really meets and decides um, and it's turned into an institution that meets to sort of formally announce what's already been decided and, and announced, right? So could you just, I mean, if, could you in 30 seconds or less summarize 200 years of history? I mean, maybe not 30 seconds, yeah. But, yeah. but why don't we talk a little bit about how we got here from, from there? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the origins of the Electoral College are, are something uh, of a mythology, depending on who you talk to, you know, and, and as I've read through the notes in the, the Federal Convention and, and the debates in there, um, you know, it, it, in my view, there's a little bit of truth to every mythology about why it was created. It, it, it protects smaller states, it protects candidates from smaller states, it protects uh, the slave states, it protects us from direct democracy, it insulates the president from uh, congressional election or congressional decision making, um, it, you know, creates an independent executive. There's all kinds of things I think that are going on all in the brew that are happening with the Electoral College. Um, now, in, in terms of these roles of electors, you know, it, it pops up the convention about what they think they're, they're going to do. They think they're going to be um, independent individuals who will not be beholden in any way. And that's actually kind of a remarkable thing, right? That you would show up and vote for these people who show up and their, their job, they have one job. They gather together, they vote for the president and they walk away, which is pretty remarkable right? in yeah. terms of a, a formal office. Um, and yeah, yeah, Alexander Hamilton was really 
really impassioned these would be individuals who were independent and exercise reasoned decision making because the people weren't going to be able to know um, you know from this vast country and right from New Hampshire to to Georgia how in 1787 are you supposed to know who the best candidate is going to be as president of the United States right. but everyone also realized um, whatever system you have was going to give you George Washington anyway <laughs> so I think I, I think the fallout doesn't really come until 1796 when you have two parties and you have pretty solid blocks of people um, who are backing Adams and Jefferson. And yeah. when people are going to the polls uh, or legislatures are gathering to choose their electors, they know they're not picking dispassionate individuals. They're picking federalists or they're picking Jeffersonians. Right? <laughs> Those yeah. are your two choices. And so very early, you know, even before the 12th Amendment, um, these electors are no longer sort of serving any kind of independent discretion or decision making. No. Maybe formally they still have that power, but um, you know, very early on, the, the, they became sort of conduits for the will of the people. Yeah, and just in terms of the the original vision of the Electoral College, you mentioned Hamilton, right? And Hamilton writes Federal sixty eight, which which is just this I mean, really fascinating document. Sometimes you read it today with the the current sort of the last few generations of politicians, and you chuckle a little bit when Secretary Hamilton. Uh, says, this process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who's not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. And you look at the survey of 20th and 21st century presidents, and you think, well, <laughs> maybe not a, a, a moral certainty, right? But but it was it was envisioned as serving a certain purpose and and having a certain effect on uh, Paul Tall, Tall reminds me that actually it's not just 20th century presidents too. There's there's 19th century presidents um, like uh, like say is that maybe who you have in mind? Um, but but anyway, um, that Hamilton in his description of electoral college, he's describing an institution that by the way it does its work will have a certain effect in the way it, it produces its particular decision, this sort of singular decision of picking a president. We'll get back to that um, maybe later in the discussion. But for now, you're, as you said, very quickly after we get past President Washington and political parties start to have their effect, there's, there's the, 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 not just 1796, but the election of 1800 and sort of a rethinking of the presidential electoral process. Um, at what point do the states start passing laws like the ones that are at issue now in terms, or maybe, maybe I don't know if Congress maybe thought about this too, but at what point what, did we start to see legislation that actually purported to bind either Congress or um, the Electoral College in the way that they, those institutions went about their work in counting presidential votes? Yeah, so in terms of binding, um, you know, th that's really a 20th century phenomenon. Um, you know, very early in the Republic, um, they anticipate that that you could replace electors if they, if they fail to show up, um, you know, if they're derelict in their duties. Um, but in terms of attempts to bind them, you know, I'd say uh, the major thrust starts happening after um, uh, 1948. And this is where segregationists in the South and there's some splits in some of the parties are happening. Um, and there's real f fragmentation about whether or not you know, in the South, it's whether or not these Democratic electors are going to be faithful and vote for the Democratic Party candidate or vote for someone else. Um, and so some of them are actually faithless in 1948, which leads to uh, a political parties start trying to bind the delegates. And the Supreme Court considers these, these pledges that 
the parties are imposing on their members. Um, and then 1952, in a case called Ray versus Blair, the Supreme Court says, yeah, we think you can impose these, these oaths on electors to require them to follow through with their pledge. Um, and now whether or not that's enforceable, the court says, we're going to leave for another day. At least you've sort of forced this on them, um, but maybe they can still disobey. Um, and then later, some, some people start to say, well, you know, maybe that's not enough. We need to have a mechanism to start to be able to replace faithless electors, to prevent them from misbehaving. Um, and so slowly after that, states began to experiment, develop uh, some statutes that might uh, bind electors, either fining them like Washington or replacing them like Colorado had. Um, and, and that's given rise to the situation we have today, that while there have been faithless electors in the past, um, throughout history, those who vote contrary to their expectations or to the candidate they were pledged to support, um, you didn't have until the 2016 election, uh, you know, statutes in place that purported to replace or fine these electors, and then electors actually misbehaving, failing to do so. Um, so, so these are, in a sense, a, a fairly recent vintage. Yeah, and and in that same sort of recent time period, we've had, and not coincidentally, I suppose, we've had this sort of ongoing situation where presidential politics has felt like it's been at sort of a knife's edge, right? Ever since the the the, the Bush v. Gore uh, election, right, where everybody is both you know hopeful and but also worried that the the presidential election will be decided by a small number of, of, of votes, right? Hopeful if you're cheering for what might otherwise be an underdog and, and fearful if you're cheering for somebody who might otherwise be the, the front runner. But where it looks like it's actually plausible that the swing of just a few electoral votes could, fund, could profoundly change the outcome of the election. And as you mentioned at the outset, seeing in the 2016 election sort of real sustained calls for that to happen among people who were dissatisfied with, with the candidacy of of President Trump. So obviously now this case reaches the Supreme Court challenging um, these laws. And um, I suppose it's a good thing the court is going to try to resolve this before the election. But why don't you just walk us through the sort of the crux of the constitutional issues on, on the merits, and then we'll, we'll turn to this jurisdictional point that you've raised. Yeah, so on the merits, there's this question about the scope of state authority to regulate presidential electors, right? So the, the, the Constitution authorizes states to, to govern the manner uh, of, of appointment of presidential electors. Um, so the question is, what or how broad is the scope of that authority, right? Um, everyone agrees, or so far everyone agrees, uh, that you can add conditions to... Um, to serving in office for presidential electors, that you have to be a Republican or Democrat. If you're you know, a Republican who wants to pick your own slate of electors, you, you can condition them on requiring that kind of a thing. You can require electors to live in a particular district in your state, which is something you might not be able to require a senator or a member of the House of Representatives to do. So we think that there's things that states can do to regulate those things. Um, everyone also seems to agree that you can replace electors if they die or if they fail to show up on election day. Um, but the question is, you know, what, what is it about the, these acts that they perform? At some point, does the state power go away and the electors maintain some degree of independence, right? That is, they're supposed to vote 
and that when the Constitution speaks of that term vote, that, that suggests there's some kind of choice, some individual decision making that occurs. Uh, they vote by ballot, which suggests that they're sort of writing something down in a way that not everyone's going to see what, what the results are until they're, they're unfolded and looked at. Um, so there's, and it, even in their name, electors, right, to elect is to, to make some kind of a choice. So, uh, especially when you take those kinds of words and put them up with, you know, Alexander Hamilton's expectations, among other things, uh, the thought is maybe the states lack the authority to to regulate their behavior. Um, even if everyone expects them to behave in a particular way, um, they, they just the, the Constitution doesn't allow them to do so. That, that is, the, the electors have that independence. Uh, on the flip side, you have sort of congressional practice, which has in some ways scrutinized what electors have done. Um, most of the time approving of the decisions, even when they're, they're voting for someone other than the candidate they're pledged to support. Um, but you also have sort of the self expectations of the people too, which is these are nameless individuals to most of us. They don't appear on the ballot in most states. Um, they, uh, are, are sort of invisible, uh, individuals until that moment <laughs> they meet in the state capitals and, and cast their votes for somebody. Um, so in that respect, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's an expectation in the public that, they aren't independent actors. And if that's the case, maybe the state does have that authority to regulate them. And I think that's, that's the crux of sort of the merits of the constitutional claim. Now, thinking about the constitutional argument, it really reminded me of, of two cases. And I'm curious what you think of these. One is one of my favorite cases from constitutional law when I studied it a long time ago. It was U.S. term limits versus Thornton, uh, the case about uh, states imposing, as the name suggests, states imposing term limits on members of Congress from that state. Um, I came to law school, like a lot of people, sort of animated and excited about politics. Term limits had been sort of a conservative um, call for a long time, especially for those of us who read George Will's columns in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so I came to the case thinking, well, yes, of course, it's, it's allowable and, and good for states to impose term limits. But the Supreme Court, in this opinion, pushes back against the states and says that, no, there are some things that the states can't reach into in, in federal electoral processes, that the states have a certain job in this process or jobs, but they can't add to the qualifications of um, members of Congress. That's defined by the Constitution. How does that sort of thinking fit into the, the analysis of this case now? Yeah, so it's... it's it's one of these sort of pure constitutional cases where, you know, prior to the constitution, there was no such thing as a presidential elector, right? I mean, there was no president and there were no electors. So all of the, the creation of, you know, state power comes out of the constitution, much like term limits, right? That is, um, you have to find some grant of authority in the constitution. And there, the court, especially focusing on sort of structural reasoning, says, look, I mean, you can regulate the time, places, and manner of holding elections. You can uh, control the qualifications of voters. But in terms of controlling the qualifications of members in the House and Senate, they're enumerated and fixed by the Constitution. You can't add to them. Now, it does say in Article 2, Section 1, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature, therefore, may direct a number of electors. And so I suppose the state is saying that's what we're doing here. All we're doing is appointing these in the manner that the legislature has directed. Is that? Yes. Like, that's it. The yeah. other case this reminds me of, for the reasons actually you just suggested about, about um, the, the origins of these issues um, and the nature of this case, is the Noel Canning case um, from a couple of years ago, the dispute between President Obama and, and the United States Senate over whether the Senate was in recess and, and 
and therefore whether President Obama could appoint members to the National Labor Relations Board without the Senate's advice and consent. Um, the Supreme Court unanimously strikes down the appointments. They say that, no, the Senate wasn't in recess, but there's two very, very different opinions in the case. Justice Scalia's concurrence is sort of a classic textualist opinion, parsing the text of the recess appointments clause and some background principles. Um, Justice, I think, Breyer's opinion for the majority is one of, as Will Bode sort of popularized, the notion of liquidation, right? That the Congress and the, the Senate and the President to some extent, the House, have been fighting over these issues for 200 years. And they've, in the middle of this sort of ambiguous constitutional mechanism, they've settled into some um, practices that the court kind of maps a legal framework onto. And I know in this case, Rebecca Green, Professor Rebecca Green, I don't know if she's filed a brief, but I know she's written a law review article and a shorter piece. She's argued, in effect, that two centuries of practice have have liquidated these constitutional provisions in a way that I gather allow the states to impose these sorts of, of limits. Um, how do you sort of think about those principles of practice and liquidation in the context of a case like this? Uh, so I think it's, it's fascinating. Right? <laughs> I think you're exactly right to, to think about Noel Canning. And I think, yeah, Professor Green has done some great work thinking about this. Um, you know, I think in, in particular, the liquidation argument in Noel Canning, right, is there was a, there was a strong fight about um, when, when the vacancies may happen, I, yeah. I think is the language the Constitution uses, right? And yeah. um, does that mean that you only have the power to fill vacancies that happen while the Congress is in recess or that you get to fill any vacancies regardless of when they happened uh, as long as you're filling them while the Congress is in recess, right? And that, that former definition is something that maybe if you were to take sort of a, an originalist approach, you would look at and you'd look at the words and you look at the, say, yeah, I think that that's what it means, but no one has really construed it that way for an extended period of time. So what are you supposed to do with that then, right? And I think that's yeah. where Justice Breyer said, well, we're not going to do that. And in the same way here, you know, do we really expect electors to exercise this independence? Um, they occasionally do. They flirt with it here and there. But since 1796, you know, they've been extremely reliable in terms of their role and their responsibility. And um, so, so there's a sense in which maybe they lack that discretion. They've given it up. They've lost it in a way. Yeah. On the flip side, however, you know, states, these states statutes, as I mentioned, are, are somewhat novel, right? They, they haven't really been in place until the later 20th century. And this is the first time they've had to have been used. Now, maybe they haven't had to be used in the past because it's so rare. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the novelty of the state statutes uh, is also at, at, at issue. So maybe part of the novelty is um, the states are now enforcing what um, the last vestiges of what the electors had given up in the past. Um, so I think it's a fascinating argument. Um, you know, probably if you're speaking, strictly speaking, if you're looking at the, the original meaning of the Constitution, the electors probably ought to be exercising their independence. But at the same time, that, that's dramatically opposed to how they've behaved and how we expect them to behave and how states have conducted their affairs in the, in the centuries since the 12th Amendment's been enacted. 
So now for the last, you know, the course of this conversation, I've been the worst kind of host I've invited you on and had you talk about everything other than the legal brief no. that you actually wrote, because we've now teed up all these fascinating issues. Everybody wants to know what the Supreme Court's going to decide. Professor Mueller comes into the scene and says, actually, the Supreme Court shouldn't and mustn't actually decide the issue. Your argument is that the political question doctrine which we'll have to explain for our audience, but the political question doctrine should prevent the Supreme Court from actually deciding the constitutional case. Um, what do you mean? And so I, 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 I'm the one who's no fun at parties, right? Because right. everyone shows up to the Supreme Court expecting to litigate. And I say nothing. You know, this is, you know, Adam, to, to be frank, this is a reason I'm excited to be on your podcast, thinking about constitutionalism outside of the judiciary, right? And to right. be thinking about the roles of other branches of government. You know, in elections, you know, maybe we expect in a post-Bush v. Gore world uh, for the Supreme Court to handle all these massive uh, election law issues. But, you know, early in my research, I started to get fascinated. Not, not, I, I won't digress too long, right? I was fascinated by the notion that, um, you know, the Constitution says each house is to judge the elections, returns, and qualifications of its members. It uses the word judge in Article yeah. 1 for Congress, right? That's kind of a remarkable proposition, that it, it resides in the houses of Congress to decide who wins elections, whether or not you're qualified to serve. So there already is sort of baked in the Constitution an expectation that election results are actually something that are not judicial in function, um, so here I look at specifically the text of the 12th Amendment, which says the president of the Senate shall in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives open the certificates, that is the, the certificates listing the votes of presidential electors from the several states, uh, and the votes shall then be counted. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's all it's right. So, so when Congress gets together, um, you know, in uh, January 6th, 2021, they're going to count the electoral votes and they're going to count Alabama's and Alaska's and Arizona. They just go down the list alphabetically and they add up the votes. But every time they do that, they're deciding, boy, which votes were cast? Are they valid? Who are they for? And, and making some determinations. That's usually not controversial. But, but since the beginning, and I, I trace this back to some instances that were happening in 1809 uh, up to the 2016 presidential election itself where Congress has to decide it's going to count these votes or not that votes. It's going to refuse to count certain votes. It has to choose from among multiple slates of votes. So, so the gist of my brief is to say in, in 2016, Congress had the chance. Congress, uh, you know, got Colorado's votes. And you know what color it did? It counted nine votes for Hillary Clinton. It did not count that vote of a faithless elector who tried to vote for John Kasich. Uh, and it's a little trickier with Washington, I, I, I note. Uh, you know, Washington's electors, uh, all 12 of them got to vote for whoever they wanted. Congress counted them. Um, and then afterwards, the secretary, you know, uh, slaps a $1,000 fine on four of them. So it might be a little tougher for Congress to judge whether or not uh, those laws are appropriate. But in my view, it's not much of a close case. If, if we say that Congress is empowered to count electoral votes, and it's done so, um, and it's given a result and it's decided these are the number of votes you get. You know, someone can't just show up later on and ask a court, hey, no, no, I actually should have been the one whose vote was counted. That, that's, the, so that's the heart of my brief. I'm looking at, 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 at the 12th Amendment and the line you quoted, the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be president. And at, on the one hand, you might look at this and say, 
The votes are the votes. The electors cast their votes. Congress's job is just ministerial, just count the votes and give effect to those votes. On the other hand, um, there is, before you can count the vote, you have to decide whether the, a vote is a vote, so to speak, right? That, that, that's, that's the, there's a, there's a, a joke I've, I've always loved. Um, professor Harvey Mansfield of Harvard tells it. I think it was related to him by his father, who was a professor at Ohio State. And as one Hawkeye to an, an upcoming Hawkeye, we can make this joke. Um, the, uh, somebody asked Pro- Professor Mansfield Sr., how many students do you have at Ohio State? And Professor Mansfield says, oh, about one in 10. Um, the idea being that not everybody on campus necessarily ought to qualify as a student, so to speak. And, and by the same token, not every vote that happens to be on a list is necessarily a vote. And that's, I think, where the judgment that you're referring to comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in 1800, there's actually a fight in Congress about whether or not they have, they have this power. And, and, and there's this lengthy debate on the record about whether or not Congress has to pass a statute to decide which votes to cast or whether or not it, it has the ability to do that whatsoever. And the debate kind of goes away. But over the years, Congress has to make decisions. So just, just to name a couple, um, in uh, 1873, Horace Greeley is a candidate who dies after the election, but before the electors meet. Wait, this um, is the, the, the sort of the famous Horace Greeley, the the political. Was he a new, he was a political a newspaper publisher or a, yeah, yes, yeah okay yes. yeah he's the one. So uh-huh. he dies, and um, three electors from Georgia cast votes for him, despite the fact that he's dead. And the House of Representatives gets together and says, "We're not going to count these votes. You you can't count votes for a dead man." Um, Louisiana. Uh, this is right after the Civil War. Louisiana gets together and sends in its electoral votes. Uh, actually sends in two slates of electoral votes. And Congress looks at it and says, there's no state government that we consider Republican in form. Um, we're not going to count your votes. Um, and more, you know, more, you know, in a more recent era, in the, in the 1960 election, um, you know, Hawaii has this huge fight about its electors. And there's one slate of Democratic electors casting votes for Kennedy and another slate of Republican electors counting casting votes for Nixon. And then there's a court that issues an order saying, no, it's actually a third slate of electors that are Democrats who cast their votes for Kennedy. And so Congress has to decide between these three slates of electors. It's not ministerial. They have to make a judgment. And fortunately, um, you know, Richard Nixon is a gracious loser. (laughs) He's presiding over the meeting of the electors. And he says, no, we're just going to count the three votes for Kennedy. And we're not going to establish a precedent on this. We're just going to count the votes and move on. Um, so, So Congress is constantly maybe not constantly, but often plays in this situation where it has to make a decision. And, um, you know, if it doesn't object, if it just counts them, maybe we think that's a, that's a low stakes decision. It's a not, not very highly precedential in nature, but, it, but it's with Congress, right? It resides with Congress to make the decision about whether or not to count, whether or not these electors are the right ones, whether or not their votes are appropriate. Now, I want to I push on the, the legal arguments just a little bit, but, mm-hmm. but first, back to your argument about why the court shouldn't decide this case. Can you, can you explain to our audience what the political question doctrine is? Yeah. It's not, of course, the first line of this answer is always, it's not all questions that are political, but certain questions are uniquely political in a way that they're not justiciable by a court, so to speak. 
Right. So, yeah, I think for our purposes, we can just say that when it's a, a question where there's a textually demonstrable commitment to another branch, yeah. um, it's not something that courts are supposed to do. So when the president pardons somebody or when the president vetoes a bill um, or where, where Congress has decided to impeach and holds a trial to remove somebody, those are things that courts are not supposed to get involved in. They are left to some other branch. And when that happens and you ask a court to review the judgment of that other branch, you say, no, it's it's a question for one of the coordinate political branches. It's not a question for us. And so part of my argument here is, is focusing on this fact that the counting of electoral votes resides with Congress. And all of these decisions that Congress makes about whether or not to count the votes reside with Congress. And it's not for the judiciary to step in and decide whether or not, to, whether or not they ought to do it. Uh, yeah, they're the ones who have sort of the, the, the hallmarks of finality. And as you put it at the very outset of your brief, the counting clause uh, provides a textually demonstrable commitment to Congress of counting electoral vote, including determinations about which electoral votes to count, or maybe which electoral votes, in quotes, count as electoral votes. Yes. Um, the this the sort of modern political question doctrine it has origins that reach you know far far back if I remember correctly all the way back to maybe the Marshall Court, but in its I could be wrong about that but in its sort of modern framework the key case on this is a, a also sort of politically charged case Baker versus Carr right on um, mm-hmm. political districting but there in Baker versus Carr where people said the court can't judge the constitutionality of state districting lines because this is a purely political question committed to the state legislatures, the court, uh, Supreme Court said, no, there's these hallmarks of sort of political questions, right? I can't remember how many factors there were. For some reason, I remember that, I think this, it feels like there may be six. six. Yeah, yeah, six. Um, uh, well, law school is a long time ago. But there, was, there were these six factors. And, and, and the, this argument you're making about the, the demonstrable textual commitment, that's one of the, the factors, right? Another, yeah. another one might have been sort of just the sheer absence of any judicially administrable standard. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So this is, I think, yeah. it, it, it's the first listed of the factors, and it's probably, I think, the, the one on the strongest doctrinal footing yeah. <laughs> of the factors. Yeah. yeah. And the whole point of this is that the Supreme the courts have, the federal courts have the power to decide cases or controversies, right? They have, they, they, they're not there to just announce doctrines. They're there to decide real cases in the constitutional sense. So in this case, as we said at the outset, in this case about Congress's power, the state legislators' power, the electoral voters' power, um, you, you see this as more than anything for present purposes, a case about judicial power, right? Yeah. And limits on the courts. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I mean, I think, you know, if I were in Congress, I I might have some different views about this, or I might challenge them or approach it in a different way, or I I might, you know, uh, have some shots across the bow of the states in terms of (laughs) requiring some floor statements on these matters to provide some some notice in future elections. But again, I think think these things are squarely left to Congress. And I mean, it's, you know, to to use the expression, Congress is not a potted plant on these matters. You know, I I point out, um, you can can look up the C-SPAN videos of the meeting of the the county of the Electoral College (laughs) votes in 2017. It is a it is a dynamic episode as uh, Vice President Joe Biden presiding over the Senate 
is is constantly um, you know rejecting challenge after challenge as members of Congress get up to object to the votes from Alabama and the votes from Florida and the votes from Georgia and it just keeps going and so it's it's not that Congress is unaware of its power it's not that Congress has abdicated its responsibility it's just that. No one in Congress challenged it. In fact, I mean, these these electors didn't even try to challenge that in Congress, which is sort of an interesting separate issue. Why would yeah. you kind of wait till after the fact and then litigate the matter? So, so yeah, I, I really believe in ter- terms of sort of this departmentalism, you know, mm-hmm. leaving it to Congress to count the votes and determine who the winner is. And, and we don't need the courts involved to make those decisions. You raise the jurisdictional um, issue mm-hmm. at the at what we call the cert stage, right? When the court was deciding whether to take the case or not, right? I think, or did you file after cert was granted? I filed after, yeah. Professor okay. Mike Morley had a had a good brief, I think, on the on the on the, on the cert side of things in a different respect, but yeah. Okay, so you filed after cert was granted. Sorry about that. Um, did did any of the parties that filed after you, or any of the amici that filed after you, did they engage the issue, or has everybody sort of tried to sidestep the jurisdictional point that you raised? Yeah. So some of the briefs uh, do address the notion about whether or not uh, faithless electors votes uh, are to be counted in Congress because Congress has counted faithless elector votes in the past, but others cite my brief and know, well, wait a minute, but what about in this case, Congress didn't count the faithless vote of the plaintiff in this Colorado lawsuit, right? They counted the vote of his replacement. So there's been engagement on that point. But in terms of the political question doctrine or in terms of the notion that once Congress has spoken, uh, the court ought not speak, no, there hasn't been much engagement on that point at all. And just, I guess I haven't actually mentioned yet, this case is set for oral argument on May 13th. Uh, it's going to be one of these cases that's going to be argued sort of extraordinarily by conference call or, or Zoom call. <laughs> um, it's only going to have eight justices because Justice Sotomayor has recused because she's, I think, friends with or she at least knows one of the litigants. Yeah, well, she's only recused from the Colorado case because, yeah, she knows one oh. of the litigants, Polly Baca. But yeah, she is. So I think they're doing the Chiafalo case where all nine of them can participate. Then she'll peel off and then the other eight will participate in the second argument. Now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that'll affect the uh, the merits decision. You know, I think the thought was to have them decided together. But I think that's also an interesting wrinkle. Yeah. Um, OK, so so having gotten that out of the way, back to the the, the constitutional argument, you know, if you're right, if the, the court mustn't hear this case, right, it's not hard for somebody to conjure up sort of a worst case, like, a, like an absurd hypothetical, right? What happens when Congress comes to count the votes and they just plainly thwart the overwhelming will of the majority? Like, say some, some hypothetical where, say it was 84 with Reagan, right? Reagan overwhelmingly wins the popular and electoral votes but say um, Democrats controlled Congress and they sit there opening up each each sort of envelope of votes, so to speak, and they just report that actually Mondale won uh, 49 states. Is there really no sort of judicial remedy for that kind of uh, absurd hypothetical? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I- I'm more comfortable with saying to let the absurdity run, right? Uh, I mean, I think that there are some who, you know, so I cite the the work of Professor Bob Pushaw and my colleagues at Pepperdine, where he says, well, absent some plain and egregious violation of the 12th Amendment, 
just as one of these escape clauses. And this comes out occasionally in the court's jurisprudence, even in the political question doctrine cases, right? So think about the, uh, so Nixon is a case where the court emphasizes that the, the Senate has the sole power to try impeachment. So we're not going to judge whether or not they've had a trial, you know, that's for the Senate to decide. If they hold some some hearings on the side, and then they show up in the Senate and vote to impeach this person, we're not going to question it. But then there's all these concurring opinions from judges say, well, but you know, if there's a coin flip and it doesn't look like a trial, then maybe we'll step in, right? So so there's one philosophy out there that might say in, in political question doctrine cases, even such as this one, unless we feel like it is so plain and egregious a violation, maybe there's some room for the judiciary to step in. Yeah. But you know, but I, I, I'm also, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable letting the political branches do their political things. You might think that an impeachment or election or whatever, it, or a veto, a pardon, whatever is the most egregious, inappropriate thing in the world. And in fact, I think we've heard, um, you know, just about all of those things, those arguments made in the last two or three years, you know, this pardon was the most egregious thing ever. This impeachment was a witch hunt, whatever it might be. Well, that's, that's for the political branch to decide. And, and, and even if you think it's an egregious, palpable violation, um, you know, bring it back up to that political branch in the next election, bring it back up in the, in the next appropriate forum, you know, take to the streets and assemble. But um, yeah, there's just, it's, it's not the place for the judiciary to step in. Yeah, and maybe in, in that sense, the the case that it reminds me of is, or at least the opinion, is Scalia's dissent in Morrison versus Olson, where he says, you think it's so crazy that the president would have sole power to fire prosecutors, including the ones that might investigate him? Well, there's every branch has things that are committed to its sole yeah. discretion, and, and this, I suppose, could be one of those examples. Um, okay, the you know, looking more broadly at the Electoral College and its framework, I mean, for me, the, the sort of the less frivolous hypothetical, the one that the legal argument that I, th- I think resonates the most with me is that, yeah, we focus on these lines from the 12th Amendment about the votes shall be counted. But Article 2 and the 12th Amendment, they contain an entire process, right, by which electors would be would be chosen or empowered in which they would they would meet, even if it's just now ceremonial, just ceremonially, um, they would vote. Um, and yes, then their votes would be counted, but it seems to me there's a risk that if we focus on just the, the exclusive powers of Congress, we risk rendering the the real constitutional process that precedes it as sort of a nullity, right? It's, and we could say, yes, you, can re, you have recourse to the next congressional election, right? If the House really does thwart the will of the people, will the, the will of the people get to vote again in two years and vote for a new president two years after that? Um, but by focusing on the powers of Congress, isn't there a risk that we're, we could render the everything before it sort of just kind of dead letter? So, so I think there is that risk. Um, but let, let me let me focus instead on the on, on the particularities of this case, right? Because these two challenges are occurring now after Congress has acted, right? And that is. If states prior to the election are doing things, or if, if states are, you know, in, in the course of counting votes or in the course of the meeting of the electors doing something inappropriate, we want to challenge those things. We can we, we can do that. I feel more comfortable in doing so because we haven't sort of then usurped the congressional authority or the congressional decision-making process. So this actually is squarely what's happening in Bush versus Gore, 
right? There's all this litigation happening after election day and the recounts and the state Supreme Court giving guidance about how you're supposed to count votes and are you certifying the votes and which counties have recounts and what's the standard for recounts and all these things. You know, and the Supreme Court gives its, its sort of decision and it's, it's you know, divisive and, and controversial and all that. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, those votes are then sort of cast according to the Supreme Court's rules and go to Congress. Now, Congress could, Congress actually would have had the authority to reject them if it wanted to, and it didn't, right? right. It, took those, it took those votes. Some mem- several members of Congress tried to object, but they didn't, sort of, they didn't have a senator join them. So under federal law, you need a member of the House and a member of the Senate to join together in an objection in order for them to consider it. So, so there would have been that opportunity to actually challenge the votes from Florida, and, and it failed in Congress. Like, so, so I think there is a distinction in, in a case particular like this, where Congress has counted the votes. Congress has said, Colorado, these are your nine electors, and these are who they voted for. Um, and so after that, in my view, the judicial role looks a little different than in those cases where it happens before the election. Uh, thinking about the Florida, elect, uh, the, the 2000 election reminds me that the one sort of running the proceedings in Congress was Vice President Al Gore, right? <laughs> yes, um, yes. And, which actually makes me think, uh, going back to that provision in Article in the 12th Amendment, sorry, the president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall be counted. And I wonder, who really has the power here? Is it the, <laughs> is it the, is it the members of the Senate and the House, or is it really... Yeah limited to the the president of the Senate, the vice president? What if we have a vice president who goes rogue uh, in the, the counting of the of the votes? I guess I hadn't really thought about it in that sense of yeah, the power within Congress. It's great. So, I mean, we're recording this on Zoom. I know everyone's going to have a podcast, right? But I, I, you know, I, re- I reached behind my shelf to pull off a, a book called The President Counts or Presidential Counts which was a, a record developed out of Congress in 1877 as a result of the highly contentious election of 1876. And this precise issue is actually raised. They say, well, wait a minute, does the vice president have this power? And they say, well, no, he's presiding over the meeting and we look at these congressional precedents. And this is, yeah, there, there's a textual ambiguity in the Constitution about who holds that power. And Congress, in this very thick book that I love looking at, that I, you know, I can buy used off of eBay because no one looks at books like this anymore, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it has all these precedents of what Congress has done and Congress sort of, and maybe we call it liquidated meaning, or maybe we say it's sort of, it's empowered to decide who's in charge. It says, you know, we as the two branches of Congress gather together and we're the ones who make these decisions. And today we have a statute on the books since 1887 called the Electoral Count Act um, dealing with this precise situation. And Congress sets set up all these rules now about, well, you know, we gather together as, a, as one body and if, if members from each side object, we go into separate meetings and we have two hours of debate. And then if, if there's one set of electors, we have to have agreement from both houses of Congress to veto it. And if there's not uh, you know, if, if we have multiple s- slates of electors, then we give preference to the one the executive signed off on. And there's all these interesting procedural rules that suggest it's not just Congress acting arbitrarily, right? It's not just picking 49 states for Mondale, right? It's, a, it, it, it's an elaborate, thoughtful legal process. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear Congress solve the problem or fix the glitch. <laughs> um, by the way, on that, the, the disputed election of 1876, um, for our audience, you know, the, 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 place, to re- the, the place to read all about it is uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's book, which you cite in your brief, um, mm-hmm. Uh, the Centennial Crisis, the Disputed Election of 1876. It's one of those, right, where he, 
he wrote about uh, the the election crisis after Bush versus Gore, <laughs> as opposed to when he wrote about um, impeachments before presiding over an impeachment. Let me ask you a question, um, and then we'll I'll, I'll get back on track. But your blog is called um, Excess of Democracy. Where'd you get that from? Yeah, so that's Elbridge Gary, who was you know at the de- he he signed the Declaration of Independence and at the Constitutional Convention pretty early on. He is he's pretty adamantly opposed to a lot of popular democracy in the United States. And he, uh, he comes out and says a lot of the evils we suffer in the United States under the Articles of Confederation are actually, they flow from excesses of democracy, um, that there's too much direct democracy in the United States. So one reason he supports an electoral college, or at least not direct election of the president, is he wants to have some buffers, some individuals who are going to stand between the people and the election of the executive. And he's, you know, he'd gone through Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts and a popular uprising. And so he's coming with, with sort of particular, uh, a particular approach. But, you know, I, I choose it as a, as, a, as a name for my blog, um, as a way of remembering that, you know, in, it, it, it's funny that we complain today, or many people complain today, oh, you know, at the founding, there was just, just, they just didn't appreciate the kinds of suffrage, the kinds of direct democracy that we have today. And I'm like, well, actually, there are people at the time who thought we had way too much democracy in 1787 and maybe we need to tone it down a notch. It's kind of all a matter of, of the perspective and where you come from. Right. Well, Gary's arguments worked out well for him. He wound up becoming vice president. So I suppose (laughs) it worked out. But the reason why I asked that question is, and maybe we'll we'll finish on, on these notes, um, thinking about the electoral college as an actual institution, right? We think about the electoral college as sort of an accounting device, Mm-hmm. Um, and there are eloquent constitutional arguments in defense electoral college um, in terms of the need to resist sort of just outright national majority rule, right? The idea that the electoral college, it changes the way that candidates campaign. It changes the nature of our politics in a way that hopefully moderates it, right? Um, there's all of that. And, and just recently, um, Krista Muth published an, an essay in National Affairs, one of AEI's um, publications, where he recounted the way in which another sort of scholar and friend of ours, Michael Yolman, um, who passed away last year, um, he s- helped to save the Electoral College during the debates of the 1970s by, as just a congressional staffer, writing a report that actually changed the minds of a number of senators. I can't remember which ones. Maybe it was Scoop Jackson. Um, but but he, he really made a constitutional argument for the need for the Electoral College as a moderating institution. Um, But the thing is, as we see these sustained arguments about the Electoral College, it's very hard to sort of mount a defense of the Electoral College when it just boils down to, again, kind of an algorithm, right, for for translating popular votes into electoral votes. and it seems to me that, of course, it's been a long time since the Constitution actually worked this way. Um, but it would be, I almost sort of wish that the, the Electoral College were a real institution in the sense of the people meeting, deliberating, voting in a real, actual, physical embodied way that then demonstrates the values that it's now just sort of just theoretically um, offers, right? The, the fact that the Electoral College is just this kind of pass-through entity 
yeah. has have kind of undermined, and maybe it will someday prove to undermine the political viability of the Electoral College itself. How do you, and this is, this is not just past the limits of your legal brief, but it's really beyond <laughs> the questions of law, but as somebody who studied this, the history of it, the law, the politics, I mean, what's your sense of, of the place Electoral College, what the role it plays in our constitutional government and also the sustainability of that role or institution. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I think I have sort of three reactions. The first is, you know, it, these debates are so hard to have nowadays when they are, they are drawn along partisan lines about whose ox has mostly recently been gored, right? <laughs> so Hillary Clinton wins uh, the most popular votes nationwide, but Donald Trump wins the Electoral College. So it's Republicans storming to the defense of the re- Electoral College and Democrats calling for its abolition. So I think that makes these debates very hard, these discussions very hard to have in ways that weren't true in 1969, 1970, the last real push to reform the Electoral College. If you remember, I mean, Nixon... Nixon was looking at a lot of voter fraud in 1960 <laughs> that he thinks might have cost him the election. And 1968, there's a faithless elector in North Carolina who's voting for George Wallace. And he's sitting there saying, what kind of a system do we have here? So there's, it, it, it's a partisan moment that makes these discussions tough. Yeah. The second is to think about sort of the way the Electoral College works in terms of distributing political power across the states. So setting aside the role of the electors, um, in my view, I think there's a, it, it's very defensible to say rather than one aggregate vote, we divide up into 51 jurisdictions, which is how we hold our elections anyway. <laughs> and we sort of add up our votes and we have different voter registration requirements, voter qualification requirements, um, different candidates on the ballot. That's okay. And we base it on the total population in each state, not based on the number of voters you have. So states with lots of children uh, you know, or, or non-citizens are going to have more political power in the Electoral College because um, their House representation is based on their population. And um, it's not based on voting strength. So, so in some ways, I, I think that's a defensible political theory. Now, other people have different approaches to political theories, and that's perfectly legitimate. We can have that discussion, but I think it's an entirely defensible to, to think about distributing power on a state basis and distributing it on the basis of total population. Um, but third, you know, the specific role of electors you know, and, and Hamilton's vision that these would be dispassionate individuals or that we wouldn't be able to figure out who in the country would be the best president of the United States. You know, um, I mean... In the 21st century, we are saturated <laughs> with information about who the who the best president should be, and don't don't give a fig for who the electors in our state are going to be, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the, it's not for a lack of information or inability to to to, to understand. Um, since 1796, it is the fact that there are two political parties who pick a nominee, and. And you know then, because we require a majority rule and we have the two-party system, that it's one of those two. Um, and all of the efforts are channeled to getting to a majority. All of the efforts are channeled through a two-party system. All of the efforts are channeled to say our electors are backing this person or that person. And again, this is from 1796. It's, it's not a novel creation. And so in that respect... The electors, you know, could you ever force them to just exercise independent judgment? Could they ever do so in the absence, you know, in the absence of political parties? Because if you were to destroy the political parties, they would just come back again in some other kind of form. So I think in a sense, 
when, when they're enacting the Constitution and they're not giving a whole lot of thought necessarily to how the electors are going to behave, they have their hopes, they, they have their dreams, they have their wishes, uh, they know they're going to pick Washington. But I think the fact that you can't sort of compel them to exercise independent judgment, <laughs> you, you, you can't force them to sort of isolate themselves, um, it, it is a real shortcoming. It, and it's, it's uh, no surprise. I mean, Hamil- or Madison in Federalist 10 recognizes, look, you can't, you can't just quell faction, right? Our, our goal is to just make sure that, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, branch check branch. We're going to make sure that we have, uh, you know, make it difficult for majorities to get anything done to trample over minorities. We're going to make sure that human nature isn't going to take over uh, the, the halls of government. So it's a little naive to think, oh, yeah, we're just going to have this group of people is going to be the, the reasoned independent actors. <laughs> and, uh, and it's Congress and the, the president who are the evil, wicked ones who are trying to aggrandize themselves. Um, yeah. so, so I think the role of electors qua electors, you know, ha- hasn't really worked. And, uh, you know, uh, this case is, I think, a reflection of that, um, that just hasn't really worked the way that maybe anyone hoped they would work. Well, again, the cases are Chiafalo versus Washington and Colorado Department of State versus Baca. This is scheduled for argument on May 13th. Um, they'll be live streamed. I don't know if they're being, I don't know how this is working now, if the cases will be live streamed to the public, but in any event, the audio will be out soon thereafter. We'll see what the court decides or, you know, as, as Alex Bickle famously says, sometimes the court decides not to decide. Um, and that's <laughs> what you're urging them to do. It's a fascinating brief on a fascinating subject. And Derek, I'm so glad you could join us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, and thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of Unprecedented. Please join us when we'll be back again soon. <laughs>